We spent this in last month looking at Revelation. And who asked for this series, by the way? Which, which of you in there wanted, uh, all through the years, I sure wish you'd teach Revelation. Well, we've been looking at Revelation from angles rather than sequence. Sequence approaches to Revelation is, I think, what a lot of people had in mind when they said, I sure wish you'd teach Revelation, solve the end times puzzle, tell us when these things are going to happen and how they're going to play out. And timelines are discernible from Revelation and other scriptures that preview an end time. But the approach that I've taken accords more with the purpose of doctrine, which is to teach followers of Jesus how to live now in his presence, what we need to know now in order to follow him. If we know Jesus is Savior and Lord and is gathering to himself people who give him the worship that he is due in response to his grace to us, if we're the people who love him, if we count ourselves among the people who obey him, who, who follow him, then the reason we study doctrine is to enhance and enable our love for him and our obedience to him and our worship of him and our witness about him. So then if doctrine does its job, it equips us. It equips us to, in the words of verse 4, follow the lamb wherever he goes. And Doctrine that equips us for this includes eschatology, which is end times theology. You take the Greek word eschaton, which means end times, and you put ology on it, and you get the doctrine of the end times. Now, there's a number of places in Scripture that talk about the end. And whenever Scripture pulls that curtain back, as it were, and shows us the end, in a lot of those contexts, we're told to maximize the present. A lot of times when you're reading the Old Testament, people think the prophets always talked about the future and things to come, but the prophets of the Old Testament talked more about their present time. They did see things that were coming ahead of them, but they talked more about how do we respond to God right now in the terms of the Old Covenant that they were under. So whenever Scripture pulls back the curtain to show us the end, in so many of those contexts, both in the Old Testament and the New, we're told to maximize the present to be fully present to God in Christ in our here and now. And to that end, also eschatology serves the doctrine of the end. It really has two purposes. If you take eschatology in its, in its big, broad consideration, the two purposes of eschatology, one has to do with hope. Hope is about where we put our confidence and security in life. And, and the other purpose of eschatology actually has to do with where we put our happiness. The visions of heaven that we are, are given is one of, of a happiness that no human being knows here. We get little, little bitty increment tastes of it, but there it's full on. And so all these visions of heaven that Revelation presents us with, as well as other places in Scripture, that's part of the purpose of eschatology. It, it tells us about where to put our hope, and it tells us where to put our happiness. Eschatology teaches us to endure with hope. Verse 12, this calls for the endurance of the saints. Endure with hope and put our happiness out of the reach of God's enemies. That's what eschatology purposes to give us in broad considerations. Now with this in mind, 
These 13 verses here in chapter 14, I want to look at from two angles. A brotherhood at the end, this 144,000 that emerge, and a beasthood at the end, as I'm calling it. The brotherhood and the beasthood we have here before us in chapter 14, and they both emerge toward the end. The first angel says, now is the hour of judgment. An hour is a, is, is a big deal in, in prophetic contexts as you go all through scripture. Now, I, I don't mean to be cutesy with beasthood. It, it came to mind uh, thinking of the priesthood of believers, which is a New Testament idea. I thought of the beasthood of unbelievers by contrast. I didn't title the sermon that. But there's a, a, a risk in my putting it this way to speak of a beasthood. And the risk is self-righteousness. The priesthood of believers means we have open access to God because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. So our standing owes not to some advantage we gain for ourselves over unbelieving people. Apart from the gracious work of Christ on our behalf, we're all part of the beasthood. But here in this passage, there is a stark contrast. Where we are in Revelation, we've not gone verse by verse or chapter by chapter. Where we are is uh, in, in some of the most intense parts of future judgments to come. And you get this very stark contrast made here. The 144,000 in the first few verses, they are a kind of priesthood of believers by description. That is, uh, the, they approximate priestly purity. If you look at how they're described, namely in verse 4, and you go back and look at the Levitical law, you see that the priests uh, uh, trek with, this, uh, with the same description of these 144,000. They're basically warrior witnesses. Uh, look at verse 1. I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, that's Jesus, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. Now if you go down then to verse 9... The third angel says, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, and also down verse 11, where he talks about the worshipers of the beast and its image and receives the mark of his name. So both groups are marked out. The 144,000 are marked out by God's name. And the beasthood is marked out by the beast and its image, meaning owned by that's what having the name of someone on you means in, in biblical uh, language. If you're not talking about a, a son or daughter, you're talking about being owned by them. So this is true of the brotherhood, as I'm calling in this passage, the 144,000. It's true of the beasthood. Both groups are owning their being owned by who they're owned by. Now, I'm sure some of you don't like binary categories, brotherhood, beasthood. You think, well, you know, things aren't always as simple as that. I mean, some are for God and some are against God, and that's just the way it is. No, it's not as simple as that always. And I would, I would agree with you on that. It's not as simple as that. Even in Scripture, it's not as simple as that. Uh, Ken and I were, were talking uh, last week about Ken's been reading in the Gospels, in his Bible reading, and he said, you know, I was struck again there by how often the disciples of Jesus, his hand-picked followers, got it wrong 
how often they were confused and misunderstood Jesus. I mean, we would have looked at Judas and thought, man of God. He's around Jesus all the time. We would have looked at the Pharisees and thought the same thing, men of God. Appearances can deceive. However, as we have things in Revelation, when the hour comes, when, when these end-time judgments begin unfolding intensely, there is a real hard distinction made between those who have been lifted out of what condemns us before Christ to now promote his eternal gospel, as it's phrased there in verse 6. Verse 6 talks again about every nation and tribe and language and people. That's who the gospel goes out to. And in the book of Revelation, a hard distinction is made between those redeemed out of the world, out of every nation and tribe and language and people, a hard distinction between those who worship God through the Lamb, witness about him at personal cost, follow him, obey him, and those who neither worship God nor give thanks to him, if you want to put it in terms of Romans chapter 1. And this has been true of human beings all along, but toward the end, both witness and rebellion ramp up. And so I'm putting this hard distinction, as we have it here in this chapter, in terms of a brotherhood at the end and a beasthood at the end. Let's take the beasthood first. What is this about? Now we didn't look at chapter 13. We skipped over chapter 13. Chapter 13, the beast imagery begins there. And we should always look. This is what a lot of approaches to Revelation are not careful to do. They see this imagery and they begin to read into it current political preoccupations or it must mean this, it, it's got to mean that if it's all future. And what you should do in apocalyptic imagery, you should do this anywhere in Scripture, but particularly here with all this imagery, is always look for Old Testament precedents. Is this imagery, has it been used before in Scripture? And you find almost every book of the Old Testament is referenced in the book of Revelation. Uh, John's vision and John's imagination is, is soaked with, with, with Scripture. And references from the prophets and, and in historical books and the Psalms. And so when we look at apocalyptic imagery, apocalypse means unveiling. It shows you the end. It's things that were hidden and now they're up front. Things that were backstage are now brought out front stage. That's what apocalypse is. And so apocalyptic imagery is all this stuff that we've got in Revelation. And when you're trying to assess, well, what does the imagery mean? What is it pointing to? You have a couple of approaches. You can read stuff into that. A lot of popular approaches to eschatology have done that. Or you can say, and it's not just an either or, but you can also say, uh, I, I want to look for Old Testament precedent. Is there a way this image was used in the Old Testament? And if so, would it make biblical sense then to say, well, probably in Revelation, it, it, it's probably referencing something along those lines as well. And so we always look for Old Testament precedents when dealing with apocalyptic imagery. And so big in apocalyptic imagery is the beast. And when you go back and you look in the Old Testament, sure enough... Beast refers to empire. And the bestial empire is an empire that rages against God. It gets all this power, all this control, all this dominance 
and it rages against God. Remember Psalm chapter 2 or the second Psalm? Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed one, basically saying we're going to throw them off. This is the spirit of empire. And furthermore, if you go back into the Old Testament, empires, plural, who rage against God, all end up getting uh, lumped under the heading of Babylon, which is sort of the original one to do this. Look down in verse 8. The second angel has this little sermon, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. This is verse 8. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made the nations drunk with the wine of her passion and sexual immorality. Now Babylon is biblical shorthand for human society that's most secularized. So what have we got here? We've got a beast and we've got Babylon. And Babylon is biblical shorthand for human society at its most secularized. Now, what we need to understand about secularism is is that it's not neutral. A person who's been thoroughly secularized has a belief system, even if it's a kaleidoscope of options. But in secularism, you're free to choose whichever uh, thing you want to, to believe. There is no big guiding truth that all of us must adhere to. And so what it means to be secularized is not just no belief in the triune God of Scripture, no devotion to Him, no allegiance to Him, but secularized societies actually encourage disbelieving in the God of the Bible. The cultural rewards all side with disbelieving. Stephen Hawking, as a representative, the great scientist, he said, you know, science doesn't disprove the existence of God, but it makes belief in him irrelevant. What it means to be secularized is not no belief in God, that's there, but the accomplishment of unbelief. Everybody believes something. Everybody who pretends they're religious They still are. It just may be a religion of their own making. You know, it's coalism. It's Lynnism, you know. It's just something of their own creation. Nobody is neutral except probably uh, a psychopath. (laughs) That would be be the only neutral person I can think of. Not that I know any. Um, Just looking at this in verse 8. We're talking, about, we're talking about the beasthood first. We'll move to the brotherhood further up in the chapter. This beasthood that in the end God judges. Throughout the Bible, beast is used for empire. And throughout the Bible, Babylon, a place name, an actual real place, but the spirit of Babylon attaches to all these empires that go through history. You can look back at the Old Testament book of Daniel and you can see him talking about the Persian Empire and the Greek Empire and the Roman and and, and all of that and furthermore. And so Babylon designates not just empire, but empire at its worst. It's successful, it's wealthy, it's accomplished a great deal, but it's secular because it worships itself. It turns in on itself. That's the hallmark of a secularized society. Ultimately, the reference for meaning, identity, and purpose is the self. 
empires, dynasties, they all do it sooner or later. Now, we can illustrate this from the Daniel story. I've mentioned him a couple of times, so I want you to think of one thing in particular in the Daniel story. You've heard about Daniel since you were a little shaver in Sunday school, right? You remember the golden image. There's a king in, in Daniel named Nebuchadnezzar, and he's the king of Babylon, the actual ancient Babylon, the original mold. And Nebuchadnezzar was their king, and Nebuchadnezzar sets up a golden image And he says to everybody, all people groups under the Babylonian empire domain, you got to worship this image that I've made. This is in Daniel chapter 4. And in that particular thing, what's actually going on is something called forced pluralism. Now, societies are pluralistic. Our society is pluralistic. That means there are many different beliefs and religions and we all unify around a, a common constitution and, and, a, and a certain uh, understanding of, of nation and, and rule of law. But pluralism is a fact. It's a fact of, of global existence. But enforced pluralism says you're free to worship any god you choose as long as you worship this one too. That's forced pluralism. And that's what happens to Daniel and his companions from Israel when Babylon takes over and they go into Nebuchadnezzar's service. They were facing an old version of the beasthood with Nebuchadnezzar at the helm. We have the echo in Revelation 14 of Daniel chapter 4. You can go back and look at the story in Daniel later. Give you another biblical example of how Babylon is used. In Daniel, it's actually Babylon. But if you go to, for instance, The uh, first letter of Peter, the Apostle Peter wrote two letters in the New Testament. And at the end of the first one, he says, she who is at Babylon sends you greetings. Now, he's not in the place Babylon. It's in Rome. And so what he means there is Rome. Rome had become the Babylon of his day. Rome under Nero, who was a fierce persecutor of Christians, impaled Christians on stick, covered them with tar, and lit up his dinner parties with them. He's the Nebuchadnezzar of his day, except there's no version of Nero repenting as there is in the Daniel story with Nebuchadnezzar. So verse 8 Look at it again. Verse 8, another angel a second followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And that's both literal and spiritual. The body and the heart. Idolatry is spiritual adultery and Babylon is full of that. Now in the next sermon, two weeks from now, because we have missions conference next week, I'll take you to see specifically what God judges powerful cultures for. We'll look at that in two weeks. But for now, just know Babylon, as it appears here in verse 8, represents everything. It's a, it's a, it's a code word, not that you have to crack the code, but it's a, it's a code word in biblical uh, usage for everything that sets itself in opposition to God. And everything that sets itself in opposition to God usually congeals in powerful cultures. The more powerful the culture, the more Babylonian it becomes, meaning it becomes very self-beholding and very self-righteous about it, even though it's very unrighteous. Now, 
this mark of the beast. We've read it here, verse 9, verse 11. You've got this mark of its name. If you will go back up to the end of chapter 13, if your Bible's open or if you're looking at electronically, scroll to the very last verse in chapter 13. We started with chapter 14, verse 1. You're looking now at chapter 13, verse 18, the last verse in chapter 13. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. What is this about? Sounds like something from the back of Ozzy Osbourne's Bark at the Moon album. This number, 666, you've been waiting for this, haven't you? It took, me six, it took him six weeks to get to this. That's all I wanted to know. What does 666 mean? Again, when dealing with apocalyptic imagery, you want to know, is there any Old Testament precedent? Is there anything in the background that helps me understand this? So I don't have to go reading into it. Uh, all of these other wise associations. And sure enough, with this number, if you go back to 1 Kings and to the rule of Solomon, think about what happened to Solomon, David's son. If you go back into 1 Kings, in the historical record of King Solomon, there's a reference to the talents of gold he imported annually, numbering 666 talents. That was the weight of it. This was his annual take of gold. So it's an intentional number. It's not coincidental. Like when you go to the county clerk office, time to get a new tag, and you're afraid they're going to give you, you know, BZS666. And you're going to say, I can't take that. My car will spontaneously combust. <laughs> it will turn into Christine from Stephen King imagination, and I can't put that number on my car. It doesn't mean anything. You can put a 666 tag on your car. It's fine. I can't. As a pastor, people would criticize me for it. So I've had to tell people in the clerk's office, well, you're getting really close to the 600s here. I need something in the fives, preferably the eights. You need to stay away from this. I don't want people to criticize me. He has 666 on his car. Solomon imported 666 talents of gold annually. What's the significance of that? You see a number in reference, you go back and you look, is there any reference to this? There is. That importing of gold was a violation of the commands that applied to him as king. 666 talents of gold, that's a superabundance for that day. And Old Testament kings were forbidden by the law of Moses to accumulate three things. Gold, horses, which essentially are weapons in that time because horses pull chariots, and women, wives. I know God gave Solomon great wealth, but kings over God's people were not to pursue it. And the reason for that restraint when it came to wealth and weapons and, and women in the king's case was because as king, you were responsible for the people. And as the king went, so would the nation. And the king was supposed to keep the land protected. He was supposed to keep it consecrated. These were a holy people, a holy nation. He wasn't to defile the land. That's what Deuteronomy calls it. If the king takes too much of any one thing, he defiles the land. That's the reference. Look back up at um, the 144,000, the way they're described in verse 4. 
It is those, verse 4, who is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, we feel funny about that word defile here, the way that reads. This feels too prudish to a lot of us. Like, you know, I thought sex was something God made good. He did. Think back again to Daniel. What happens in the life of Daniel, this Old Testament figure? He's toward the end of your Old Testament, if you're not familiar with him. Daniel was someone of Israel, and Babylon came and conquested the, the people of Israel, and they chose, the Babylonians did, the finest young men they could find to enter the service of the king. And Babylon uh, chose Daniel and some of his friends to go into this service. And chapter 1 of Daniel says that Daniel would not, they, they were put to the king's table, which basically means every indulgence, culinary indulgence was open to them. A lot of people in those cultures in ancient times lived hand to mouth. Food was scarce. These guys were going to get to eat anything and everything. And Daniel, being uh, from Israel, being uh, a, a man under law, wants to keep kosher. And he says, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna defile myself. That's the term that gets used. I'm not gonna defile myself with the king's food. The king's food was fine. The king's food was good. I mean, Christians have done all kinds of, there's a Daniel diet, you know, and stuff. I mean, just stop. Uh, it, it wasn't about Daniel keeping some washboard, you know, stomach. Uh, it, it was about Daniel living in Babylon, but not being of Babylon. Same here in Revelation 14. The central contrast, looking at Revelation 14 with all this in mind, the central contrast between the brotherhood, the 144,000 who emerge at the end as a, as a kind of missionary force, the central difference between them and the beasthood that's always been around but is intensified in its commitment to itself at the end is that one is owning God's ownership of them. One is recognizing that the, the image and likeness of God applies to human beings and therefore we owe God our lives. That's what it means to be marked. Both the brotherhood and the beasthood are marked. We saw the marking of the brotherhood up in verse 1, as I'm calling it, the 144,000. We see the marking in verses 9 and 11 of the beasthood. So the central contrast between these future end timers, the 144,000 brotherhood and the beasthood is that God's ownership applies to all of them, but only one will recognize it. That's what having someone's name on you signifies. They will own God's ownership of them, the 144,000, not resist God's claim on them, not oppose God's claim on him. It's one thing to resist it. It's another thing to oppose it. And the, the beasthood are known as they go on for their opposition, not their ignorance or their negligence or, or a little bit of resistance or, or, or their syncretism, but their opposition. If you lived for yourself in Old Testament times, that was called defiling the land. Why? Because they were a holy nation. They were a called out people. They were set apart for God. And so if you did things that God said don't do, you were defiling the land. It's a very vivid image. Priests were warned about this, as well as kings, warriors. If you go back to Deuteronomy, there's instruction given to warriors who are to fight Israel's battles that they are to abstain from sexual relations. Why? 
It was about consecration for a task. It was about set-apartness. You even get this in the New Testament. Paul makes a reference to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about uh, a couple abstaining from sex to pray. But he says very quickly there, it has to be for prayer and it, and it, and it needs to be a short time or Satan will opportunistically come in and make uh, havoc out of this. It's not because sex is wrong or dirty. No more than foods are wrong or dirty. The 144,000 are consecrated to God as the last missionaries on earth, essentially. Call them warrior witnesses. And they're going to battle not against the beasthood, that is, people, but against the one who has ensnared these people, enthralled them, opportunistically capitalizes on their sin so that they get really hardened in it. Now, uh, what about the Antichrist? Is that who the beast is? Is the beast as we have him here in chapter 14, have it here in chapter 14, that's the, the pronoun, it, is this the Antichrist? What's interesting, in the book of Revelation, you never get a reference to an Antichrist. People assume, well, Revelation teaches about the Antichrist, but the, the word is never used. You get this imagery of the beast, and there's more than one beast. In chapter 13, there's a sea beast and a land beast. The sea beast appears to be a Gentile power. The land beast appears to be a, a frenemy of, of, uh, of Israel. But nevertheless, uh, John does talk about the Antichrist in his letters. And again, Revelation is a book from John, just like the Gospel of John. And then John had some letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. These are all in your New Testament. And if you go back and you look at 1 and 2 John, his letters to churches, he talks about Antichrists, plural. And he talks about the spirit of Antichrist. And in one particular place, 1 John 2.18, he says, his readers have heard that Antichrist, singular, is coming. So he talks about Antichrists, plural. He talks about Antichrist, singular. And we say, so which is it? Is Antichrist one? Is Antichrist many? Well, Antichrist is a spirit, and it's a beast, and it's an individual, and it's an empire. All at the same time, you say, that doesn't solve anything for me. And I say, welcome to apocalyptic literature. But there is a bottom line. There is a bottom line. What all this beast imagery points to is a dedicated opposition to God which both human and spirits, fallen angels, Satan and his realm, participate in, sustain, ramp up, energize, animate, keep it going, glory in it. It's political. It's personal. It's a dedicated opposition to the gospel of Jesus and its implications for dying to self. See, it's one thing to say, well, they're opposed to God, but God is very general, now, we know what we mean. We say God. We mean the triune God, one being, and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. But it's not just opposition to God here in Revelation. It's opposition specifically to the gospel of Jesus Christ and how that gospel implicates all of life. Now, this opposition, it's always been true of the world, but it ramps up toward the end. And so what the beasthood is, it's, it's, it's the triumph of secularization. Our putting our ultimate hope and happiness in ourselves and what we accumulate and accomplish for ourselves and, and wanting God to stay totally out of that. 
But God keeps sending witnesses into that, right into the teeth of it. He never leaves himself without witnesses because he's never without grace and mercy, even in judgment. And that's where this brotherhood comes in. Look at them, the 144,000 strong brotherhood marked by death to self. They have a kind of priestly purity to them, a kind of warrior focus. Jesus originally described his followers would be those among whom it is obvious that they have died to self. So they, they fit an original mold here. If you and I are worshipers of God in Christ, if we respond to God uh, as the angels do in, in verse 7, fear God and give him glory, angels worship him, though they are not redeemed creatures themselves, but they are nonetheless worshipers of God and messengers for him, and so are we by way of our redemption, reconciled to God through the gracious work of Jesus on our behalf. If we respond to Jesus... The lamb, as he's called here in verse 1, verse 4. If we respond to him with worship and with praise and with thanksgiving and obedient love, we're also numbered among his brothers, which also includes sisters. But this brotherhood of 144,000, because they are very specific, here in chapter 14, back in chapter 7, you get the tribal listings of where they come from. And you've been given multitudes in Revelation. And so this doesn't appear to be a little bit of everybody. It appears to be a very specific group. 144,000. They're, they're numbered off more than once, more than twice. This brotherhood, as we see them here, it's kind of a throwback group. The flavor is distinctively Jewish. Jewish apostles. Why are they 144,000? Well, go back and look at how numbers are used. Who are the Jewish apostles? Twelve. What's 12,000 times 12? 144,000. What are the Jewish apostles? The first great missionary force. What are these Jewish men? The last great missionary force. Like their apostolic forebears, these guys are distinguished by special calling. If we take it at face value, these are Jewish men set apart to be the last great missionary force the world hears from before every opportunity for repentance is gone. Then it's kind of like the book of Acts revisited. I'm not sequencing this out, but it's kind of like that. These 144,000, look in verse 4, where they are called the first fruits for God and the Lamb. This helps us position where they come onto the scene. First fruits because they emerge as believers ready to work for God within a period of judgment called the Great Tribulation. Now, chapter 7, which names or lists where they're from, mentions this great tribulation. It appears to be a seven-year period of unparalleled judgments on the earth, at the end of which Jesus brings in the eternal state. They're called, the 144,000, are called to operate in this particular period of time to lead people out of the beasthood of unbelief into the greater numbers of which heaven is populated but most won't come, not during this particular season. And you know, God's grace, it, it never fails and it never ends. There's a reference back in one of the prophets, Jeremiah. Jeremiah 51 has this, this amazing call to the people of God to lament the destruction of Babylon. Babylon's caused all this pain, wreaked all this havoc, and God says, take up a lament for Babylon because we would have healed her but she's unwilling. 
Throughout Scripture, Babylon won't be healed because the spirit of Babylon, the personality of Babylonian empire is self-reign. No need for forgiveness from God. No need for anything from God. We can do it on our own. We can use God as a mascot. We can give a little hat tip to him, but it's really about us. That's the Babylonian spirit. Not just no belief in God, but active discouragement to worship him exclusively through Jesus on Jesus' terms. So are these 144,000 really Jewish believers? The way I understand the great sweep of Scripture is that it seems God will do a reviving work, an awakening work among his original people, again, to put their hope and their happiness in the one who is Jesus alone. The prophets seemed to expect that. The apostles hoped for it, worked for it. The first missionary force the world knew was Jewish. The last one is too. That's the best I know what to do with what, how they're described, them being very specific. The 144,000 are not gullible, getting sucked into what the beasthood is entangled in. Nor are they cynical, though they find a lot of hardened unbelief around them. Their witness seems to be preserved from that, whereas ours really hasn't been. Our witness is too often gullible or cynical, but not theirs. And they are called to come onto the scene as the last sands are running out of the hourglass to help people understand what is happening. Why is God judging? And they're doing this in the spirit of the, of, of the apostles of old and the prophets before them. And to point people to Jesus. They won't buy into lies. They're an uncompromised witness to the world at the end, for what obedient love submitted to Jesus looks like, and the world needs that because they've not gotten it from the church. At least not so much in this cultural context. If you go to other contexts around the world, they are getting that. The beasthood is sort of a, you know, Superman and Bizarro. Uh, Bizarro is kind of the, the beasthood takes everything of Jesus and makes it about itself. It's like Bizarro Jesus. If Jesus says, don't store up treasure on earth, the beasthood says, do store up treasure on earth. If Jesus says, don't put all your hope in here and now, the beasthood does exactly that. And they put all their happiness in the reach of of a very real enemy who wants to sift us and lie and deceive and accuse and plunge us into shame and reinforce our default, no, default notion that happiness is nowhere else found except in what we want for ourselves. And the beasthood buys in. The brotherhood gets redeemed out of this. Just as you and I have been, if we know Christ, same grace that applies to us applies to them. You know, when you think about this today, you say, well, how is this possible? Because Israel is a really hardened place to Jesus. It's friendly to Christians. I mean, we're their tourism industry. And, and the guides know how to play to our devotion. They know how to make every group think they're right on the cusp of believing, you know. Because we've, we've figured out the one thing that nobody's ever brought up to them. But Israel itself is hardened to Jesus. In fact, there are far more Palestinian Christians in that region than Jewish believers. The Palestinian church is alive and vibrant. You don't don't find a Jewish church like that. That's a fact. But the prophets believed that God would regather the people he started with 
And and at the end, it seems that he does. But until such time, what do we do with this? Whenever scripture pulls back the curtain and says, here's what the end's going to look like. Here's who the players are involved. We're instructed to maximize our present time. To move closer to God, to assimilate everything he's promised to be for us in Jesus and fend off whatever seduces us into putting our hope and happiness in lesser things. The lamb reigns now and the lamb will reign and blessed are those who follow him. Let's pray. Stand with me, please. Father, we thank you for this time and this opportunity to look in your word at challenging passages which are hard to fully comprehend, Uh, grant us an apprehension, but not an apprehensiveness. Lord, we thank you that you, in doing all things well, that that includes the end, includes how you will bring all things to the conclusion for which you have, have drawn us to. We thank you that uh, you have it all in your time and in your manner. Father, we pray we would understand from this passage what we need to understand in order to glorify Christ in our here and now. And we pray this in his name. Amen.